Hello, it's Eric Topol with Ground Truth, and I have a remarkable uh, guest with me today, uh, Professor Michelle Monger, who is from Stanford, a physician scientist there, and is really a leader in uh, neuro-oncology, uh, the big field of cancer neuroscience, uh, neuroinflammation, and she has just been rocking it recently with major papers in these fields, uh, no less her work that's been on uh, a uh, particular cancer, uh, brain cancer in, in kids that we'll talk about. But um, I just want to give you a bit of background about uh, Michelle. She is um, a National Academy of Me Medicine member, no less actually a National Academy of Medicine awardee with the French Academy uh, for the Richard Lonsberg Award, which is incredibly prestigious. Uh, she received a genius grant from the MacArthur um, and is on the Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, support HHMI scholar. So she is just an amazing person who I'm meeting for the first time. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. So nice to join you. Well, um, I just am blown away by the work that you and your colleagues have been doing. Uh, and it transcends many different areas uh, that are of utmost importance. Maybe we can start with long COVID because that's obviously such a big area. Uh, not only have you done work on that, but you published an amazing review with Akiko Iwasaki, a friend of mine, uh, that really went through all the features of long COVID. Can you summarize uh, your thoughts about that? Yeah. And, and, you know, specifically, we focused on the neurobiology of long COVID, you know, focusing on the really common syndrome of cognitive impairment, so-called brain fog after COVID, even after relatively mild COVID. And there has been this, I think, really important and, and exciting um, really explosion of work in, in the last few years, um, uh, you know, internationally trying to understand this in, in ways that I, I'm hopeful will be beneficial to many other uh, diseases of cognition that occur in the context of other kinds of infections and other kinds of immune challenges. Uh, but what is emerging from, from our work and from others is that inflammation, even if it doesn't directly initially involve the nervous system, can very profoundly affect the nervous system. And the mechanisms by which that can happen are diverse, but one common mechanism appears to be immune challenge-induced reactivity of an innate immune cell in the nervous system called microglia. And these microglia are, you know, they, they, they populate the nervous system very early in embryonic development, and their job is to protect the nervous system from infection, but also to respond to other kinds of toxic and um, infectious and immune challenges. They also play in, in healthy conditions really important roles in, in neurodevelopment and in neuroplasticity. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of multifaceted cells. And there's a, there's a subpopulation population of those cells, particularly in the white matter, in the axon tracts, that are exquisitely sensitive, it seems, to various kinds of immune challenges. So even if there's not a direct nervous system um, insult, they can react. And when they react, they stop doing their normal helpful jobs and can dysregulate really important interactions between other kinds of cells in the brain, like neurons, and, and support cells for those neurons, like oligodendrocytes and astrocytes. And so one common, you know, emerging principle is that microglial reactivity triggered by even relatively mild COVID occurring in the respiratory system, not 
directly infecting the brain or other kinds of um, immune challenges can trigger this reactivity of microglia and, and consequently dysregulate the, the normal interactions between cells in the brain so important for well-tuned and, and you know, optimal nervous system function. And, and the end product of that is, um, is, is dysfunction and cognition and, and kind of a brain fog, impairment in attention, memory, ability to multitask, you know, impaired um, speed of information processing. But there are other ways that COVID can influence the nervous system. Of course, there can be direct infection. Um, we don't think that that happens in every case. It um, may not happen even commonly, but it certainly can happen. Um, there is a clear dysregulation of the neurovasculature, um, the immune response, and, and the reaction to the spike protein of COVID in particular can have very important effects on the, the vessels in the nervous system, and that can trigger a cascade of effects that can cause uh, nervous system dysregulation and may feed directly into that reactivity of the microglia. There also can be reactivation of other infections. Previous, for example, um, herpes virus infections, um, EBV, for example, can be reactivated and trigger um, a new immune challenge in the, in the context of the immune dysregulation that COVID can induce. There also can be um, autoimmunity. <laughs> there are many, we're, we're learning all the different ways COVID can, can affect the nervous system, but autoimmunity, um, you know, there can be mimicry of um, some of the, the you know, antigens uh, that COVID presents and, and, you know, unfortunate autoimmunity against nervous system targets. And then finally, in, in severe COVID, uh, where there is, you know, cardiopulmonary compromise, where there is hypoxia and, and multi-organ damage, there can be, um, you know, multifaceted effects on the nervous system in, in severe disease. So, so many different ways, and probably that is not a comprehensive list. It is certainly not a mutually exclusive list. Uh, you know, many of these interactions can happen at the same time in the same individual and in different combinations. But, you know, we're beginning to wrap our arms around all the different ways that, that COVID can influence the nervous system and cause this fairly consistent syndrome of um, impaired attention, memory, multitasking, and executive function. Yeah, well, there's a lot there that you just summarized, and particularly you highlighted the type of glia, the microglia, that uh, appear to be um, potentially central, at least a part of the story. Um, you also made an analogy to what you've seen with chemotherapy, chemo brain. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've been studying the the cognitive impairment that can happen after cancer therapies, including chemotherapy, but also radiation and immunotherapy. And each time we we you know develop a new model and dig in to understand what's what's going on and how these cancer therapies influence the nervous system, microglia emerge as you know sort of the unifying principle, microglial reactivity and the consequences of that reactivity on other cell types within the nervous system. And so understanding that microglia and and their reactive state to toxic or, or immune challenges was central to chemotherapy-induced cognitive impairment, um, at least in in preclinical you know models in the laboratory and confirmed by, by human tissue studies, I worried at the very beginning of the pandemic that we might begin to see something that looks a lot like chemotherapy-induced cognitive impairment, the syndrome that is you know, characterized by impaired attention, memory, executive function, speed of information processing, and multitasking. And when you know, just a few months into the pandemic, people began to flood neurologists' office, um, you know, 
complaining of exactly this syndrome, um, I, I you know, felt that we needed to study it. And so that was the beginning of um, what has become a really wonderful collaboration with Akiko Iwasaki. Um, I reached out to her, kind of cold called her in the midst of the you know deep COVID shutdown in, in 2020 and said, hey, I have this idea, would you, would you like to work with me? And she's, you know, as you know, just a thought leader in, um, in COVID biology. And she's been you know, an incredibly wonderful and, and, and valuable collaborator along the way in this. Well, the two of you pairing up is kind of wow. You know, that's a, that's a powerful a combination, no question. Um, now, I guess the other thing I wanted to get at is there have been many other studies that have been looking at long COVID, how it affects the brain. Uh, the one that's frequently cited, of course, is the UK Biobank, where they had CT or MRI scans uh, before in people, fortunately, and then once they had COVID or didn't get COVID in it, had a lot of worrisome findings, including atrophy. And um, and then there are others that, uh, you know, in terms of this um, niche of where immune cells can be uh, in the meninges and the, and the bone marrow or the skull of the, of the brain. Uh, could you comment on both those issues? Because they've been kind of coming back to haunt us in terms of uh, the more serious uh, potential effects of um, COVID on the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I will say that I think, you know, all of the studies are are actually quite um, parsimonious. They all really kind of point towards the same biology, examining it at, at different levels. And so that UK Biobank study was so powerful because, you know, in what other context would, would someone have MRI scans of, you know, ac- across the population pro- and cognitive testing prior to the COVID pandemic and then have paired same individual tests after, you know, a range of, of um, uh, severity of COVID infection. So it was just an incredibly important data set, you know, with control individuals in the same cohort of people. This longitudinal study has, you know, continued to inform us in such important ways. And that study found that there were, you know, there were multiple findings. One is that there appears to be, you know, a, a small but Substan- you know, significant atrophy in the neocortex. Two, um, that there is there are also abnormalities in um, major white matter tracts, and three, that there you know is 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 particular pathology within the olfactory system. Um, and we know that COVID induces a, as a very common early symptom this loss of smell, anosmia. Um, and so, you know, I think that, and then together with those structural findings on MRI scans, that individuals, even with relatively mild acute disease, exhibited long-term deficits in um, in cognitive function, and that that fits with you know um, some beautiful epidemiological studies that have been done, you know, across many thousands of individuals in multiple different you know uh, geographic populations, uh, underscoring this consistent finding that. COVID can induce lasting cognitive changes. And and as we begin to understand that biology, it fits with those structural changes that are observed. We do know that the olfactory system is particularly affected. And so it makes sense that the olfactory system would show those structural changes. The neocortical and um, white matter changes evident on MRI fit with what we found um, microscopically uh, at at the cellular and molecular level that, you know, 
highlighted a loss of myelinating oligodendrocytes, a loss of myelinated axons, um, a, a deficit in um, uh, hippocampal new neuron production. Um, all of those findings kind of fit together with, with the structural changes that the UK Biobank study um, highlighted. So, you know, clearly this is a, a disease that has lasting impacts and, and the, the challenge is to understand those better so that we can develop effective interventions for the many, many millions of people who are still struggling with, um, you know, de decreases in their cognitive function long after COVID exposure affecting the world population. Yeah, that's a great summary of uh, how the biobank data UK uh, aligned with the work that you've done. And I guess the other question just to round this out um, is, you know, for years, we didn't think the brain had an immune yeah. response system, right? And then uh, th there's been a wake-up call about that, and maybe you could summarize Absolutely. what we know there. Absolutely, yes. The brain is not, we used to call the, the nervous system an immunoprivileged site, and it is not, you know, it is not hidden from the immune system. It has its own and distinct immune, you know, system properties, but it's very clear from work by Yoni Kipnis and others that there are, in fact, uh, lymphatics in the nervous system. These are in the meninges. Um, there, it's also become increasingly clear that there is a, um, a unique bone marrow niche in the skull uh, from which many of the, you know, lymphocytes and other kinds of immune cells that survey and, and surveil the brain and, and spinal cord. Um, you know, that's that's where they come from. That's where mm -hmm. they develop and, mm -hmm. and that's where they return. And the lymphatic drainage um, of the nervous system, you know, goes to distinct places like the posterior cervical lymph nodes. We, we are now understanding the sort of trafficking in and out of the nervous system of cells and, and certainly understanding how that changes in the context of COVID, you know, how those cells may be particularly responsive, um, you know, to, to the immune challenge initiated in the respiratory system is something that is an area of deep um, uh, importance and, and active exploration. And in fact, um, you know, some of my ongoing um, collaborations and ongoing lab work focuses on exactly this question. How, you know, how does the trafficking from the brain borders into the nervous system, um, you know, it, it, it change after after COVID, and how does potentially cellular surveillance of immune cells contribute to uh, of the nervous system contribute to the persistent microglial reactivity that we observe? And do you have any hunch on what might be a successful, worthwhile therapy to a candidate to test prospectively for this? I think it's too early to nominate candidates, but I think that the, the biology, the molecular and cellular biology is, is underscoring a role for particular cytokines and chemokines um, that are, you know, initiated by the immune response in, in the lung um, and, and, you know, clear cellular targets. The goal, be, you know, I think the central goal being to normalize the neurovasculature and normalize microglial reactivity. And so the question in this disease context and in others becomes how can we kind of molecularly coach, you know, these reactions active cells to to go back to doing their normal jobs, to being homeostatic. Um, and, and that's the challenge, but it, it's, a, it's a surmountable challenge. It's one that I think that, you know, the scientific community can figure out. And it will be relevant not only to COVID, but also to many other, um, you know, consequences of immune challenges, including other post-infectious syndromes. This is, it's not only COVID that causes long-term cognitive and other, you know, um, kinds of, of neurological and neuropsychiatric 
um, consequences. We, we saw this after the um, influenza pandemic in, in 1918. We've seen it after many other kinds of, um, you know, infectious challenges. And, and it's important as we prepare for the next pandemic, for the next, um, you know, global health challenge that we understand how, um, you know, the long-term consequences of um, an immune response to a particular pathogen play out. Oh, no question. And that, I guess, also would include myalgic encephalomyelitis and all the other post-infectious, post-viral uh, syndromes that overlap with this. Now, um, to switch gears, because that work is just by itself uh, uh, extraordinary. But now, there's this other field that you are a principal driver, leader, and that is uh, cancer neuroscience. Uh, I didn't even know they had boards in neuro oncology. I thought neurology was enough, but you got board certified in that too. But um, this field is just exploding with in, of interest because of the ability for cancer to cells to hijack neurons and neural circuits, uh, which you know I guess the initial work goes way back, but more recently the fact that gliomas were uh, you know just electrically. Uh, charged. And so maybe you can frame this because this uh, has, um, you know, not just amazing biology, but it's also introducing all sorts of therapeutic opportunities, and including many ongoing trials. Yes, yes. And, and thank you for asking me about it. It's certainly one of my favorite things to think about. And perhaps as a bridge between, you know, the the cognitive impairment that occurs after COVID and other inflammatory challenges and the neuroscience of cancer, I'll just highlight that maybe the common theme is it's important to understand the way cells talk to each other. Um, and that they, you know, these sort of molecular conversations are happening, um, you know, on multiple scales and uh, in, in unexpected ways, and they shape um, pathophysiology in, in a very important way. Um, so kind of continuing on that theme, um, we've known for many, many years, for, for decades, in fact, that the nervous system and its activity shapes the development of, of the nervous system. And, and actually, it doesn't just shape the development of the nervous system, where perhaps it's intuitive that, you know, the activity within the nervous system might, you know, sculpt the way that it forms. Um, but it, it turns out that innervation is critical for development broadly, that, that innervation is necessary for organogenesis. And, that, you know, that this is be becoming clear in, in you know, every, every organ that's been studied. Um, and so it stands to reason, given that kind of perspective on the role that neuronal activity plays in, in normal development, plasticity, homeostasis, and regeneration of many different tissues, that the activity of the nervous system um, and those principles can be hijacked in the context of cancer, which is, you know, in many ways, a disease of dysregulation regulated development um, and regeneration. And so, you know, I, I'm a neuro-oncologist. I take care of children with a, a very terrible form of um, brain cancer uh, called high-grade glioma. Um, and, you know, the most common form of high-grade glioma in kids occurs in the brain stem. It's called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. It's, it's really the worst disease you can imagine. And understanding it has kind of been a the need to understand and treat it has been kind of a guiding principle for me. And so taking a big step back and trying to wrap my arms around the biology of these terrible high-grade gliomas, like glioblastoma, like diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, um, 
I, I, I wondered whether nervous system activity might influence cancer the way that it influences normal development and plasticity. And as soon as we started to leverage tools of modern neuroscience like optogenetics to ask those questions, to, to modulate the activity of, of neurons in a particular circuit and see how that influences cancer proliferation and growth, it was clear how very important this was. Uh, that you know, act, active neurons of various subtypes very robustly drive the drives the growth of these brain cancers, and so you know, trying to understand the mechanisms by which that occurs, so that we can target them therapeutically, it, it's, it's become clear that the tumors don't just respond to activity-regulated growth signals. They do. There are those you know paracrine factors, but that in brain cancer, the cancers actually integrate into the neural circuits themselves, that there are bona fide electrophysiologically functional synapses that form between various types of neurons and um, high-grade glioma cells. We're discovering the same um, can occur in brain metastases um, from, from different organs. Uh, and, and that this principle by which neuronal activity drives the cancer is playing out in other tissues. So right when we made these discoveries about glioma, um, you know, in within this uh, few years, discoveries were made in prostate cancer, in gastric cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer, pancreatic cancer. It seems that innervation is critically important uh, for mm. those tumors. And not just for their growth, but also for invasion, metastasis, even initiation in, um, you know, diseases in, in, that are driven by particular oncogenes, there's an intersection between the, the, the power of those oncogenes to cause the cancer and the necessary environment uh, it, for the cancer to form. And, and that appears to also be regulated by the nervous system in very powerful ways. So, you know, the, the exciting thing about recognizing this relatively unsettling feature of, you know, cancers is that as we understand it, the neuroscience of cancer becomes a, an entirely new pillar for therapy to combine with, you know, immunotherapy and more traditional cytotoxic therapies. And we've been missing it until now. And so the, the opportunity exists now to leverage medicines that were developed for other reasons, for indications in neurology and cardiology and psychiatry, you know, medicines that target neurotransmitter receptors and ion channels. Um, that it turns out have a role in, in some uh, of forms of cancer. Now, each cancer has its own biology. So different types of neurons, different neurotransmitters, uh, different neuropeptides play specific roles in that tissue context. But the, the principle, you know, is the same. And so as we understand each cancer, we can start to understand what neuroscience-inspired medicines we might leverage to, to you know, better treat these tumors. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing as a cardiologist to think that beta blockers could be used to help people with cancer. And of course, there are trials and, and some studies and particular uh, cancers in that. So uh, one of the things that people maybe not outside outside of uh, oncology uh, don't follow these, the, these papers about hallmarks of cancer. Uh, there's been two editions, major editions of the hallmarks of cancer. And recently... In the journal Cancer Cell, uh, Douglas Hanahan and you wrote a classic about that the hallmarks need to be revised to include, um, you know, neuroscience. And maybe you could elaborate on that because it seems like this is like a missing frontier that isn't acknowledged by, you know, some of the traditional views of cancer. Absolutely. So, you know, I think 
number one, I want to just give a shout out to, to Doug Hanahan um, and the, the role that this, um, you know, the, the Hallmarks of Cancer, which is a, a review article that he wrote and has become sort of the Bible, if you will, of cancer biology, you know, really out, you know, laying out common principles across cancer types that, you know, have have provided a framework for us to understand this complex and, you know, diverse heterogeneous set of diseases. Um, and so it was very exciting when he reached out and, and asked if I wanted to write this perspective, you know, uh, you know, nervous system interactions, neuroscience interactions as, as an emerging hallmark of cancer. Um, and, and as we examine them from that, we examine, you know, the neuroscience of cancer from that heuristic set of principles, this, you know, framework of, of principles of cancer biology, it's clear that um, there is a, a neural influence on the vast majority of them. We, we now understand from this, you know, exciting and burgeoning field um, that, you know, the nervous system can regulate cancer, you know, unregulated proliferation, it promotes, you know, proliferation and growth, it promotes invasion and metastasis, it alters the immune microenvironment, it, it can both promote pro-tumor inflammation uh, through neurotransmitter signaling, it can also um, help to modulate anti-tumor immunity, um, you know, the crosstalk between immune cells, cancer cells, and the nervous system are complex, profound, and I, I would argue incredibly important for immunotherapeutic approaches for, for cancer. Um, and, and, you know, at the, at the same time that there is, are these, you know, diverse effects of the nervous system on cancer, cancer also influences the nervous system. And so there's really this bi-directional um, crosstalk happening by which, you know, neurons in, in an activity dependent way, um, either, you know, in short range local neurons or in long range, um, you know, down a nerve um, or across a circuit, promote the pathophysiology of the cancer. And, and you kind of know it's beneficial because the cancer does many different active things to increase innervation of the tumor. Um, there is in, in a variety of different tissue contexts and disease states, elaboration of, um, of nervous, inter, you know, nervous system interactions through cancer derived um, either axinogenic or synaptogenic factor secretion. Um, the nervous system remodels the nerves, it remodels the neural circuits to increase you know, the, the connectivity of the nervous system with the cancer and also to increase the activity of the, of the nerves, to, to increase the excitability of a neuron. And this contributes to um, not only driving the cancer, but to many of the really important symptoms that patients face with cancer, including, um, you know, tumor-associated seizures as well as uh, cancer-associated pain. Yeah, I mean, this is actually, you know, so um, unusual to see a whole another look at what cancer is about. I mean, it's just, you know, this is about as big a revision of thinking as I've seen, at least in, in many, many years. And um, the fact that uh, you pull, pulled this together about kind of the, the new hallmarks also made me wonder, because, you know, a number of years ago, we went through this angiogenesis story, whereby, mm -hmm. like this, um, cancer can hijack blood vessels and promote its growth. And as you know very well, a lot of these anti-angiogenic uh, efforts didn't go that well. That is, they maybe had a small impact overall, but they didn't, you know, change the field uh, in terms of success of therapy. I wonder if this is going to play out very differently. What, what are your thoughts about that? Because there's lots of shots on goal here. Um, and, uh, 
the trials have sprouted out very quickly to go after this. Yeah, I think it's important to to recognize, you know, various microenvironmental effects on a cancer, including the nervous system effects, as one piece of a puzzle uh, that we need to put together in order to effectively treat the disease. And I think to effectively treat particularly very aggressive cancers, um, we need to, you know, hit this from multiple angles. Um, and effective strategies will need to include you know, targeting cell intrinsic vulnerabilities of the cancers as most traditional and targeted therapies are focused on doing right now, together with, you know, decreasing the the strong growth and metastasis, you know, influencing effects of the nervous system. I think that's one pillar of, of the um, uh, of therapy that we really have been missing and that represents an important opportunity, as well as leveraging the power of the immune system, which perhaps will only work optimally, particularly for solid tumors, if you also address the nervous system influences on immune cells. And so I think that, you know, it's part of a, a holistic approach to effective therapy for tumors we have so far failed to treat with, you know, kind of single agent or, um, you know, one dimensional kinds of approaches. We need to target not only the cell intrinsic vulnerabilities, the immunotherapeutic opportunities and the nervous system mechanisms that are influencing all of that in really important ways. So I think it's important to design clinical research for, you know, in the, in the context of cancer neuroscience with that holistic view in mind. We don't think one strategy is going to be curative or difficult to to treat tumors. I don't think that blocking, you know, neuron to glioma synapses and glioblastoma and DIPG will alone be sufficient, but I do think it may be necessary for other therapies to work. Yeah, I think that a perspective of in combination uh, is is exceedingly important. And, you know, now the, the overall, there's a big fixation, if you will, about revving up immunotherapies, various ways to do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, without attention to the, the uh, neurogenic side of this, that uh, might be a problem. Now, that gets me to the tumor uh, type uh, that you have put dedicated effort, which is this pediatric pontine tumor, which is horrendous, invading the brainstem. Um, and you've even done work with engineering T cells to go after that. So you cover all the bases here. Um, can you tell us about where that stands? Because if you can prevail over that, perhaps that's one of the most challenging uh, tumors of, of people there is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just a few words about this tumor for those who don't know, um, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma and other related tumors that happen in the thalamus and the spinal cord um, are the leading cause of brain tumor-related death in kids. This is a universally fatal tumor type that tends to strike school-aged children, um, and it's it's the worst thing I've ever seen in medicine. I mean, it really has been something that since I saw in medical school, I just have not been able to turn away from. And so studying it from many different perspectives, um, both the cell intrinsic vulnerabilities, the, you know, the microenvironmental um, opportunities for therapy and, and, and also the immunotherapeutic opportunities, it became clear to me that for a cancer that diffusely infiltrates the nervous system, forms synapses with the circuit that it is um, invading and integrates into those circuits in the brainstem and spinal cord, um, that the only way to really effectively treat it would be a very precise and powerful targeted approach. Um, and so immunotherapy was a very attractive, um, you know, set of approaches because, you know, in the best case, you have an engineered T 
cell or, or other immune cell that can can you know go in and kind of like a special forces agent you know just find the cells and disintegrate them from this you know synaptically integrated circuit that has formed and so um, I, I began to to search for um, cell surface targets on on this particular type of cancer and found that one of the um, one of the antigens for which many immunotherapy tools had already been made because it's it's prevalent in other kinds of cancer um, was very highly expressed on on diffuse midline gliomas, including diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. And so this target, which is a sugar, actually, it's a disialoganglioside called GD2, is extraordinarily highly and uniformly expressed on, on DIPG because the, the oncogene that drives DIPG and, and other related tumors, which is actually a... Um, uh, a mutation in genes encoding histone H3, which causes broad epigenetic dysregulation, strongly upregulates the synthesis genes for GD2. And so it's a really ideal immunotherapeutic target because it's on every cell and it's at ex extraordinarily high levels. And so, um, you know, again, speaking to the importance of collaboration, right when we made this discovery, um, one of the leaders in, in chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, CAR T-cell therapy, um, named Crystal Makel, uh, had just Stanford and her office is in you know, my building. So I walked over and knocked on the door and said, do you want to work on this together? And so we've been working together ever since and, and found that, you know, indeed, you know, CAR T cells targeting GD2 cure our mice models, which is something I had never seen. You know, I wow. developed these models and have never seen anything as effective but it's always easier to, to help a mouse than to help a person. And so, you know, we knew that, that the clinical translation would be challenging. We also knew that it would require, you know, intentionally causing um, inflammation in the brainstem that's already compromised. Mm -hmm. um, it's a neurocritical care, uh, I, I, I'm going to not use the word nightmare, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a set of challenges that, yeah. um, you know, to think about really carefully. And um, so we, we spent a lot of time and collaborated with our neurocritical care colleagues, um, our neurosurgical colleagues, um, and, and developed a protocol that had many, um, uh, you know, we anticipated this, this neurotoxicity of, of causing inflammation in the brainstem, and we had many kind of safety measures, you know, built in in an anticipatory way, gave the therapy, you know, only in the intensive care unit, um, and, and had many safeguards in place to treat, you know, anticipated hydrocephalus and other consequences of, um, you know, inducing inflammation in, in this particular region of the nervous system. And over the last, you know, four years, we began this trial at the beginning of the pandemic in, in June of 2020. So that was um, it, its own unique set of challenges. We've seen some really incredibly exciting, promising results. Um, we've presented, we, we've published, you know, some of our early experience. We're getting ready to, to um, present the larger experience. And we've presented this at, at meetings. Um, you know, we've seen some kids go from, from wheelchair bound to walking in a matter of weeks. It's been just incredible. Um, wow. wow. And, and reduced to, to nearly nothing. And other kids have had less robust responses. We've, we've, you know, the therapy has, has really helped some kids and it's failed others. And so we're working very hard right now to understand um, what factors, you know, affect the, this heterogeneity and response um, so that we can achieve durable and complete responses for every kid. Um, but I, I will tell you that my leading hypothesis right now is that it is, it is the intersection of the um, immuno-oncology with the neuroscience that is, is modulating the response. Certainly there are immune suppressive 
mechanisms, but there, there's also, I think, really important influences of neurotransmitters and neuropeptides mm. on the immune response against central nervous system cancers in, you know, in the central nervous system. And so yeah. we're, we're working hard to kind of um, understand that crosstalk and, and develop strategies to optimize this promising therapy. But it really has been, you know, one of the one of the highlights of my professional life to to see to see kids with DIPG and, and spinal cord you know diffuse midline gliomas get better even even for a while um, something I hoped at some point in my career to ever see and and having seen it you know now so frequently in our trial patients I'm I'm really hopeful that this approach will will be part of the answer and I'm hopeful for sort of the the future of immuno oncology um, for solid tumors in general I think when we understand the tumor microenvironment we'll be able to to leverage these really powerful therapies in a better way Wow yeah I mean if anybody was to try to crack the case of uh, one of the most challenging cancers ever seen. Uh, you you would be that person. Now, uh, speaking of collaboration, um, I I didn't know this until I was getting ready to have a conversation with you, but your husband, Carl <laughs> Dyseroth, is like the optogenetics father. Uh, yes. He is another um, ex exceptional, rarefied leader in neuroscience. So do you collaborate with him? We do collaborate. And in fact, you know, I, so I met Carl when I was um, uh, a medical student and he was uh, an intern in psychiatry. So we go back uh, a fair ways. We're both MD-PhD students at Stanford. And um, we've been collaborating for many, many years in many different ways. So, you know, both in the clinic, uh, I met him when I was a sub-I in neurology and he was the psychiatry intern, you know, on, on, on but um, we collaborated when he was a postdoc and I was a graduate student um, on, you know, some, some, you know, neurobiological studies. Um, we have four children. Uh, we have, I have one stepson <laughs> and four um, children that, that I can take full credit for. And so we collaborated on five kids. Um, <laughs> collaborate. For, for a while, I, I, I really wanted, because he, he is such an, he is such an amazing scientist. He is yeah. such a, you know, thought leader in, in neuroscience. And um, as I started my own independent laboratory, I wanted to not be entirely in his shadow. And so, you know, I did, um, I did make it a point to do, I used optogenetics, but I took the course and, you know, <laughs> bought the tools and did it all myself. I, I did a lot of questions, you know, at, at dinner, but, um, you know, we, I really wanted to be kind of independent in the beginning. Now that my career in my laboratory is a bit more established, um, we are, we are formally collaborating on, on some studies because, I mean, he's a brilliant guy. You know, well, I, I think Carl. that, uh, I think that you fit into that category too. And uh, a bit more established is maybe the biggest understatement I've heard in a long time. Uh, your the body of work you've done already at a young age is just beyond belief, and you're on a, a tear to do you know have big impact and you know many across the board. And as you said, um, many things that you're learning about the brain with all of its challenges um, will apply to cancer. Generally, will apply to hopefully someday a treatment that's effective for long COVID affects the brain um, and, and so many other things. So Michelle, I'm so grateful to have had this conversation. Um, you are an inspirational force. Um, you. You've covered a lot of ground in a short time and uh, between you and your husband, I don't know that, that that's gotta be the most dynamic duo of neuroscience <laughs> that exists 
on the planet, uh, the human species, I guess. And I, I just can't imagine what those those kids of yours are going to do when they grow up. But, thank you. Um, I'm biased, but they're pretty great kids. <laughs> well, thank you for this. And uh, I, I think uh, the folks that I get to listen to this will, will certainly get charged up. Uh, they'll they'll uh, realize uh, the, the work that you're doing and, and the people you collaborate with and making cold calls to people. You know, that that's another story in itself that how you can get transdisciplinary efforts when you just uh, approach somebody who's doing some good work. Another lesson just kind of hidden in our discussion. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to talk with you, Eric.